So Paul is comforting them that were thinking that if their loved ones died before the rapture, that they would be raptured, but the loved ones would not. So he makes it clear that there's two things happen at the time that the Lord appears and comes for His church, the bride. First is that those who have died will be resurrected. They will be resurrected with a glorified body. Okay, And then those who are remaining will be transformed into a glorified state. Now we'll talk about that state of that body here in a minute, Gary, because we talked about it last week a little bit. So that was the, the, the question. And so he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So he's saying, you don't have to worry about your loved ones who have passed away before the coming of the Lord. So the same way for us. We don't have to worry about it. When the Lord comes for His bride, if we're born again between the time of Pentecost and the time that He comes for His church, the bride, every believer will be raptured up, either resurrected or transformed without death. So you'll, be, you'll receive a glorified state at that moment. Is that, is that, everybody understand that? That's just for the church saints. Okay, not the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints are yet to come. The church saints are the ones that have been baptized into His body with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a unique uh, function of the Holy Spirit that wasn't done in the Old Testament. It was coming, Jesus said, at the time of Pentecost. And at that time, the Spirit of God came down and permanently indwelled those who became believers in Christ at that time. So, the first question He asked, he, he, gave them, the understanding was, is that if you, no one's going to miss out on the rapture. Okay. And we talked last week, some question was, at, I think after class, about uh, babies that are at the time of the rapture. I really believe, after looking at it and looking at it, I believe that anyone who is elect of God at the time of the rapture will be raptured. Okay. That means every baby that is at the time of the rapture that is elect of God will be born again at that moment and will be raptured. I believe that John the Baptist was born again in the womb. I believe that the Spirit of God re regenerates at His direction, at His time, whenever it is purposed of God for that person to be regenerated and born again. And so I believe that every person that is elect of God at the time of the rapture will be raptured out as part of the bride of Christ. Okay? Now, someone asked last week, we said, I think the, I, I said something about the, the children of, of believing parents that are elect of God will be raptured too. And then somebody asked me afterwards, what about unbelieving parents that have children that are elect? Well, I think the elect of God will be raptured out at that time. Now, that means that when we enter into the, the tribulation period, at the moment of the rapture, there will be nobody born again. Okay? Nobody will be born again at the time of the rapture. Immediately after the rapture, as we'll see as we go into our beginning of our study in the book of Revelation about the events of the seven-year tribulation and the events that take place after the rapture, we're going to see that the 144,000 Jews will be born again right after that time as God turns His attention back from the church to Israel and the 144,000 that are born again and sealed by God to preach and to be His witnesses during the tribulation will be the first fruits of the Jewish remnant that will come. And so they will be born again immediately after that. And then during the tribulation, there will be people that would be born again at, during that time. And in, during that time, if babies die that are elect, they will be not part of the church, but they will be part of the tribulation saints at that time. And I think that's the way it's been all the way through history. All the way through history, if a child dies, I believe that if that child was elect of God, then, then 
God would have birthed him before he died, and that person would have gone to heaven. Now, at the time of the flood, it appears that all the righteous that we know of were on the ark, um, but God could have saved anyone. And people say, well, what about, you know, babies that die? Some believe that all babies go to hell. Some believe that all babies go to heaven. I believe that all babies are in the hands of an eternal, loving, perfect God who can do no wrong, and therefore those babies will be taken care of by God. Okay? Everybody good on that? So the non-elect babies go to hell. Non-elect babies that die go to hell. And the idea of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, does, does that, that almost implies that they have to get saved in the, the normal manner as a... What is the normal manner? Um, regeneration. <laughs> they, have to be, they have to be regenerate. Right. You have to be born again to go to heaven. Right, but I mean exercising faith. Well, yeah. exercising faith flows out of being born again. So if you're born again, you exercise faith. So if a baby is born again, they have faith. They may not be able to exercise it for you, but they have faith. John the Baptist leaped in the womb of his mother when he... Oh, I get that. Just yeah. the, the concept of the fullness of the yeah, I think there is a set number. I think, I think there's a set number. That's going to happen in the natural way that we experience. Yes. Not, not through the uh, taking out the babies and counting down. Well, no. I think in the natural way that if the rapture takes place at any point in time throughout the church age, at that moment in time, anyone that is elect of God will be born again and be part of that fullness of the Gentiles. Yes. So if a baby is born and is elect of God... He won't be left behind. He'll be, he'll be taken up with it. I think that is not dogmatically shown in Scripture, but I think from looking at it from all through Scripture, comparing Scripture to Scripture, that seems to me to be a correct understanding of that. Okay? Now, the second thing we talked about was in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, now it's the times and the epics, or the times and the, the seasonal timing of that event, and it, it seems to, it does change. I mean, the, the, chapter 5 begins a new section, but it doesn't begin a new section of the context of what he's talking about. It begins a new direction of that context. So instead of talking about the problem about people dying, will they miss out? He's now talking about people that are living. Will they go through the judgment that's coming if the Lord doesn't come back before the judgment? Were they going to go through that judgment time? That's coming. I mean, he, he talked about a, Paul obviously has told them that there's coming a time of judgment upon the earth. We call it the tribulation time. It's a time that God has said he's going to pour out his wrath upon the nations and upon the earth. So the question, next question is, are we going through that time? And so in chapter, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul answers that question. He says, now as to the time and the season, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you know yourselves full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, so then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and be sober." For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and hope, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or sleep, we may live together with Him. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. So here he, he has the second point of comfort to them that when the Lord comes back for his church, everyone's going to go. The fullness of the Gentiles will go up together as the body of Christ. It will be complete and it will be all together. Resurrected or translated, you're going up together with a glorified body. Okay? The second problem or the question is no, you're not destined for the time of wrath that's coming upon the whole world. You're not. God has ordained that you not be destined. That doesn't mean that there won't be people believing that in the time of the tribulation. It's just that you as the church are not destined for that. And on your chart, if you'll notice that God has a program for Israel. And in that program for Israel, there are 70 weeks of years or 490 years. And the first 483 of those years are ended with the coming of Christ the first time. And then Israel was cut off after that. And now you have a, a gap where Israel was dispersed. They're cut off. They're under the judgment of God. And they're going to continue to be cut off until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So God instituted the church, and the church became His witnesses on earth, whereas the Jews were supposed to be His witnesses on earth prior to their rejection of Christ. Now the church has become God's witnesses on earth, and they will continue in that role, we will continue in that role, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then God will take us out, and then He will turn His attention back to Jews. And that last week of the weeks of Daniel, the last week of the 70 weeks of Daniel, the last seven years begins when the Antichrist enters into a covenant with Israel, and for seven years they go through the final judgment of God upon them by the Gentile kings, and then the Lord Jesus Christ will return and save them at the end of that time. And so that's what he's talking about. So as you look at that chart, God's program for the church goes, coincides with the program for Israel, but it's not the same. The church is not Israel. We don't become Israel. We're not tied into the Abrahamic covenant. We're blessed through the, the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ, who becomes our, bride, our bridegroom, and we become united with him in salvation but we're not part of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is for the ethnic people of Israel, not for the spiritual nation of the church. Is that clear? Everybody understand that? Okay. So, so Paul leaves it at that, and he leaves the Thessalonians with that. And then we go to Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, the second letter he writes, because some things have transpired between the first letter and the second letter. But obviously, the clear teaching of Paul to the Thessalonian church in his first letter was to answer these two questions and make the point that, no, you will not be a part of the wrath that is to be poured out on the earth during the time of the tribulation. So you get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I mean 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you see that these people are undergoing persecution and affliction. You start in verse 3. Therefore, we ourselves speak, this is chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 3, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just that God to repay, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Now he's talking about a coming of God to pour out retribution. So is that the rapture of the church? No. It says when the Lord will be revealed from heaven. So the word revealed is the word we get apocalypse from. It is the unveiling or the revealing of the Son of God in chapter 19 of Revelation. When He comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords, He's coming down to the earth in a visible presentation of His glory. Every eye will see Him. Those that are lost will be hiding from Him and trying to, to, to get away from Him. But this will be a revelation. So the revelation is not the same thing as the coming. Now the word coming is parousa, and it can be applied to either. The Lord is coming for His people, Israel. He is coming for the church. And those two things are true. And the word is used in both events, or both things, because it just means coming. But the word apocalyptic, or word apocalypse, means a revealing. It never says anything about a revealing when Christ comes in the air to meet us, to, to meet us or call us up to the air. It is a perusa. It is a coming of the Lord for His bride. But it is not a coming of the Lord to be revealed to the world and to the Jews. So there's two different types of coming. So Paul talks, talks about this revelation of God when he comes with his saints and is revealed to the, the world and to the nations. All right? Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with the Thessalonians' understanding. He says, Now we, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. So what coming is He talking about there? The rapture. Our gathering together to Him is when we're called up to meet Him in the air. We're gathered together with Him to go back to heaven, and we're going to talk about a minute in a minute what the program is in heaven when we go back to heaven. There's a program for the church in heaven during the time of retribution upon the earth. So here He's saying, okay, the Lord is coming to... to Pour out retribution upon the earth. But now I want to talk to you about, in regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to gather us up together, verse 2, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure. That word composure means from your clear thinking or your clear understanding. So he says, you have been shaken from the clear teaching that I have taught you about the coming of the Lord. Now, there's two comings. There's two aspects of the coming of the second advent. One, he's coming for his bride, and one, he's coming to save Israel. One is public for everybody to see. One is in the air for only the church saints to go up to be a part of. So Paul is saying, you're getting confused about what I clearly taught you. So when he says, be shaken from your composure, it's a word that means a clear thinking or clear understanding or clear understanding of what I have taught or what I have shared with you. You become shaken from that. You become deceived. You become confused. And he says that you might not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, he talked about in 1 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. In other words, so at the time of the rapture, it is simultaneous with the beginning of the day of the Lord. 
That is the only event that occurs in Scripture suddenly without any warning upon the world. So at the same time that the church is taken up, the world is going into the day of the Lord. And the first aspect of the day of the Lord is tribulation. Now, we talked about that in Amos. Uh, maybe we didn't. In Amos uh, chapter 4, the Israelite people were looking forward to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord to them was a day of restoration, a day of salvation, a day of blessing, a day of peace, a day of prosperity. It was the Messianic kingdom. And here's what he says in, in Amos chapter 4, Amos chapter 5, I'm sorry. In verse 18, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. Now, why would they be longing for the day of the Lord? Because of what they believed the day of the Lord was. It was a day of prosperity, a day of blessing, a day of joy, a day of salvation. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. So who is the you he's talking to? He's talking to Israel. At the time the day of the Lord begins, they thought the day of the Lord would be a time of blessing. What is it? It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It is when the Antichrist is going to pour out his wrath upon Israel. It is when Satan is going to pour out his wrath upon Israel. The second half of the tribulation, the whole program of the Antichrist and Satan is to destroy the people of God. You think it's bad now in the world against the people of God, the ethnic people of God, Israel? The whole world has turned against them and wants to kill them? Well, wait till the second half of the tribulation. Satan will be upon earth. The, the Antichrist will be here. The false prophet will be here. The unholy trinity. Their whole, their whole ambition is to destroy the people of God, Israel. And if it wasn't for God's protection of them flying as an eagle into the wilderness and, and protecting them there, the remnant would not be spared. So here he talks about the day of the Lord. The Jews are looking for it as a day of salvation. And he says before it's a day of salvation, it is a day of Jacob's trouble. It is a time of tribulation and trouble. Okay, so when, he, when they're talking about the coming day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians 2, someone has told them the tribulations and the persecutions you're going through means that you are in the day of the Lord. Okay, that's what, that's what somebody's telling them. Paul got it wrong. We're in the day of the Lord now. We're undergoing persecution. We're undergoing affliction. We're, we're in the day of the Lord now. Now, what is the difference between Christians going through persecution and people that are in the tribulation? What's the difference? Holy Spirit. Huh? No Holy Spirit. Well, that's part of it, but that's not totally all of it because what is the reference of the tribulation as far as the area it covers? The whole world. He's not talking about Thessalonica being under persecution and tribulation. He's not talking about West Africa being under persecution. He's not talking about one isolated place or two isolated places or the church going through normal persecution. I mean, Jesus made it clear, if you're walking with Christ, you're going to be persecuted in this world. But here we're talking about a specific day when it comes upon the whole world. Like he said in Luke chapter 21, 
Be on guard that your hearts, verse 34, Luke 21, be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, that that day come on you suddenly, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. So the tribulation that's coming is a specific judgment, just like it was in the days of Noah. It was a specific judgment, but it covered the whole world. There's coming another specific judgment of the tribulation, seven years, in which God is going to pour out His wrath upon the whole world, and everyone in the world will be affected by it. So here's a difference between normal persecution and that that's coming upon the whole world at the time of the beginning of the day of the Lord. So Paul makes it clear that they are confused because they believe that they're in the day of the Lord because they're suffering persecution affliction. Luke, I mean Nick. You know, I know you're going to get to this, but I think it's worth noting that they were troubled because what they were being told was counter to what Paul had told them. Exactly. If Paul had said, you're going to go to the day of the Lord, they would have been troubled. Exactly. Paul told them you would be snatched out. They were concerned. So it, to me, that's pretty good evidence that it's, we're not intended to go to the day of the Lord. Well, there's a lot of other evidences, too, that we covered. But what I'm saying is you're right. Paul had told them they wouldn't be going through this time of wrath, that God's wrath, you're, you're going to be delivered from the time of wrath, and now someone has come along and says, we're in the time of wrath now. What we're experiencing is God's wrath. We're in the midst of tribulation. And Paul says, you're confused. And he gives two things that has to happen for you to be in the tribulation. In other words, he says, let no one in any way deceive you. Verse 3, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So basically what he's saying, he's not saying that these things have to come first and then the day of the Lord begins. He's saying you cannot be in the day of the Lord unless these things are present. Okay? If you say you're in the day of the Lord, then is the Antichrist revealed? Is the apostasy in place? So these two things are always going to be present at the beginning of the day of the Lord. So when the church is raptured out, what is the apostasy? All right, when the church is raptured out, we're talking about those who are born again believers in the church, right? So everyone that is part of the fullness of the Gentiles is the born again believers in the church. It is not First Baptist Church of Maryland. It is the born-again believers in First Baptist Church of Maryland, or any church in the world. It is the born-again believers that are truly born again, that are truly the bride of Christ, that are going to be caught up together with Christ in the air. All the other framework of many churches will be intact. That's called Christendom. They hold to the teachings of Christ, or supposed to. The Catholic Church still holds to the teaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Wavering, but they hold to it. Okay? So at the moment that this takes place, the Antichrist, who is going to be a, a world leader, he's probably going to be in charge of a one-world system that's already been put in place, and he's going to be the mastermind behind this. At the time of the rapture, the Antichrist is going to convince all the other churches that are left behind to reject the name of Christ and join into a one-world religious system that has denied the reality and the truth of the teaching of the church. And they will be anti-Christian, anti-Christ, 
and they will change their name from the name of Christian to the name of a world religious system. And they will join in with all the other religions of the world or all the other ones that are ordained to be a part of this world system. They will join in and reject and turn their back on Jesus Christ, His name, His teaching, the foundational principles that the church was built on. The apostasy is not apostasy here, apostasy there. And the apostasy doesn't mean losing salvation. Apostasy means turning from what you said you believe to believing something that you said you didn't believe. So apostasy is Christendom turning away from the teachings of Christ. Now here's what happens. Look in Romans chapter 11. The Gentiles, speaking of the Gentile church or the church saints, because Paul talks about these um, in verse 11 of chapter 11 Romans, he says, they did not all stumble, talking about the Jews, as to fall away did they, may it never be, but by their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles. And so the Jews, not all the Jews were lost in cut, I mean, for salvation. Paul is a Jew. He says that. He says, I am too. I, in verse 1 he says, God has not cast or rejected His people, has He? The, may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. So those who are elect Jews are saved during this time and made part of the church. But Israel as a nation has been cut off. So during the time of the rejection of the nation of Israel, individual Jews are saved and being made part of the Gentile church. And that's what he says. He has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Okay, so the Jews were the natural branches that grew out of the rich root of the olive tree, which is not the Abrahamic covenant. It is the fact that God ordained and called Israel to be His representatives to the world. The Jews were called to represent God to the world. They were called to be witnesses of the one true God, the God of creation, the God of eternal salvation. And they were to demonstrate and show the world that their God was the true God. When Jesus came as a fulfillment of the promises to the nation of Israel, as the Son of God, to deliver Israel, they rejected Him. And so they were cut off. That's what it says in chapter 11. They were cut off. Uh, and so then it says, verse 19, you, were, you will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. We're quite right. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand according to your faith. Do not be conceited then. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. So just like He didn't spare the Israelite people, He's not going to spare the church. Now think about that. It's going down. Behold then the, the kindness and severity of God to those who fail severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall the, these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, it means that he is going to graft back in the natural branches, which means he's got to cut off the wild branches. So what do the wild branches represent here? Christendom. 
Not the true believers. They're caught up. But the ones that are not true believers are going to be cut off because they've entered into the apostasy. They rejected the teachings and the nature and the name of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Christendom will be cut off. It will be, it will be part of the, the mystery of Revelation 17, the harlot that will persecute true believers that believe the teaching and the preaching of the 144,000 Jews. The Gentiles that are saved during the tribulation will be, will be persecuted and martyred by this false religious system that Christendom has become a part of. And the 144,000 Jews will be grafted in as the first fruits of God grafting back in the natural branches. And then the remnant will be finished at the end of the tribulation. We were talking about after last week's Sunday school class. Um, is there going to be any remorse on the part of people who, when the church is cut off and they understand that they're not a part of the... <coughs> No, and the reason, the reason there won't be any remorse for those that are cut off is because in verse 9 of chapter 2 it says, The one coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders, and with all deception of wickedness to those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. They will believe the lie of the devil. They'll believe the lie of the Antichrist. And they will believe that the Christians were the problem, the true Christians, and that we need to get rid of the whole Christian thing and join into this one world solution. So people maybe that were witness to infest, they won't say, No, 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 no. There will be people that were witness to in the past that were not elect to be a part of the church, but they were elect, just like the 144,000 Jews. I am sure that Ben Shapiro, if he may be one of them, I'm sure that there will be Jews that have heard the gospel preached, and at the moment the church is taken up, then the Spirit of God will regenerate their hearts, and they will remember what was taught to them, and they will believe. So yes, there will be people that have heard that will believe, but the people that are not elect will be hardened in their position, and they will join in with the religious system. But this is only, will this only be Jews that are alive at the time? Yes. What happened about if Jews are asleep? They will be resurrected at the end of the rap, in, in the tribulation. We'll get to that in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 22, in Revelation 20, the Old, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints will be resurrected to go to the kingdom age in a resurrected body. Okay. The same as the church. Yeah. Yeah. The Jews that are, that are, the Jews that died before Pentecost and weren't part of the church, they will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. Oh, I'm sorry. To the lady's question, uh, I noticed in Revelation chapter 6, with the opening of the fifth seal of the scroll, uh, he explains to John, these, these are the souls of the tribulation saints, uh, and they implore him when you take vengeance on our behalf, a little later, uh, until the number of those who are being martyred as you were is Complete. Complete. So those are people who are saved out of the tribulation. Yes. Yes. They'll be saved. It's very encouraging. It's very encouraging. It'll be God's last great push. Uh, it'll be, uh, it'll, and it will be a large number of people saved during the tribulation. It's amazing. But it's a different time. It's a different people. Uh, that's why the, the Jews have taken the forefront again to be God. If the church was still here, we would be doing the witnessing, not the 144,000 Jews. So, okay. So Paul makes it clear.
that you can't be in the day of the Lord unless there's two things present. The revelation of the Antichrist as the Antichrist. Now, it doesn't mean he's taking the place of Christ. He is against Christ. So he's not taking the place. He's not saying, I am the Christ. He's, he may be saying, I am the Muslim Messiah. He's not saying, I am the Christ. He's saying, I am against Christ. Christ was wrong. He was not the real one, and you have to reject him. And so he is calling for the rejection of Christ, whereas the 144,000 and the two witnesses are preaching about Jesus Christ being the one. And so there's a complete difference there. He doesn't proclaim himself to be God until the middle of the tribulation. Exactly. And when Satan enters into the picture in a, in, a, in a miraculous way with him. Okay, so the clear teaching of Paul in the, to the Thessalonian church is that, I, just as I told you, no one will miss out on the rapture if they're part of the body of Christ. They've been born again from Pentecost till the time of the fullness of the Gentiles. And no one will go through the day of the Lord if they're part of the church. That's what he is teaching to the Thessalonians at that time. Okay, so any other questions about the timing of the rapture? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. In our church and in other churches, there are views that the church goes through the entirety of the tribulation and then is raptured out right at the end. Uh, that's post-tribulation belief. Uh, there's a lot of issues that I have with that because of the fact that if you believe in a kingdom, now, if you were all millennial and didn't believe in a future literal kingdom, that makes sense because it all comes to the end. The end of the age is one, one event. Christ comes down, separates all the believers from the unbelievers. The unbelievers go to hell. The believers go to heaven. It's all over. But they, but they, don't, they don't even take into account there's coming a new heaven and new earth. They just call it heaven or hell. Uh, if you have that, that means the church will go up to meet Christ in the air and come right back down to heaven. I mean, right back down to earth. And everyone that is a believer will have a glorified body. But if you believe in a kingdom age, you believe that people will be born during the kingdom age, which means that there has to be people with physical bodies. There has to be people in this current state. So the people that go through the tribulation and survive will either go into the kingdom age as the sheep in their physical bodies or as the Jews, the remnant, in their physical bodies, or they will die and go to hell. At the, when the, Jesus comes back and brings all the Gentiles into the Valley of Jehoshaphat or wherever it is where they're going to separate the sheep from the goats, the sheep are prepared for the kingdom. They go into the kingdom in their physical bodies. They have children during the whole kingdom age, and people are born again, I mean born in the kingdom age in their physical bodies, but it requires people to have a physical body, to have people born in the kingdom age. And if the rapture takes place at the end of the tribulation, everyone is going to be in a glorified state. There's nobody left in a physical state unless you try to put unbelievers in the kingdom age, and that's not consistent with Scripture in the Old Testament. Everyone will be saved that goes into the kingdom age. And so that, that's, a, that's a problem I have with uh, other, the other fact about the post-trib, I believe it, it flows out of the all-mill teaching, and it becomes people that are reluctantly pre-mill, but because of the clear teaching of the thousand years in Revelation, they, they accept the kingdom coming, but they also bring in the teachings of the Amil on the time of the rapture. And the other, the other prevalent uh, teaching, I think, would be the pre-wrath rapture, which, again, would, would take into account the, the validity of 1 Thessalonians, that the day, it just would say the day of the Lord doesn't begin at the beginning, it begins at the middle. Because that's when the 
they say the wrath is poured out at the mid, from the mid to the end, not at the beginning. But I would beg to differ that if you look at the chronology of the book of Revelation, which we will look at it, not in great detail, but we'll look at it, all of the trumpet judgments occur in the first half of the tribulation. And you have a hard time trying to believe or explain that if the day of the Lord happens suddenly at the midpoint, that it's a time of peace and security when everything is falling apart during the first half of the tribulation. The only thing that fits is what he says like it was in the days of Noah. So in the days of Noah, which precede any of the judgment that's going to fall, Noah's building an ark, and the people are watching him build an ark, and he's telling them that there's coming a judgment of God. It's going to rain. It's going to flood. It had never rained. The earth was watered with a mist until that time. And what Noah was saying didn't make sense to them, and they weren't righteous, and they didn't listen to Noah anyway. But when Noah was getting, getting close to finishing the, the boat, if you even thought about, is it possible that he's got something going here, that he knows what he's talking about? You think, well, as he gets close to finishing the boat, then maybe if, he's go if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now. Not before he gets half done, but now. So if you, if you see the things going on in the world, I mean, the rapture could have taken place any time. It's not tied to that. But the tribulation is tied to events. Israel had to be a nation again before the tribulation begins because the Antichrist, who is the last ruler of the Roman Empire, has to sign a covenant with them. And that has to take place with a nation. So it had to be a nation. So Israel had to become a nation. So as you see these things happening now in Israel, and you see that, nation, that, that Israel is a nation, and you see the whole world joining in a hatred and a conflict against Israel, something's going to change, something's going to happen. And what it's going to take is someone that has a plan that will unite the world together in a time of peace or a time of some kind of solution to all these things that are happening. And I believe that mastermind will become the Antichrist. But anyway, so again, I, I don't see the pre-wrath rapture as satisfying when you compare Scripture with Scripture. Because part, part of the problem with the pre-wrath rapture is that the seven years begins then at the midpoint, and then you have to go into the kingdom age to finish the bold judgments and some of the other judgments, which doesn't flow or doesn't fit with the understanding of Christ taking care of all that before the kingdom begins, and the kingdom begins its time of peace and, and, and clarity. Okay, how much time have I got left? Okay, we're running out of time. Let's, real quickly, I want to introduce the next subject, which is what happens when we are raptured. What happens when we're raptured? Where do we go and what are we doing? If we're not here during the seven years of tribulation, what are we doing and where are we? Does that make sense? <laughs> okay. All right. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is talking about departing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. 2 Thessalonians. No chapter 5. I'm missing those last two chapters. Oh, yeah. I apologize. 2 Corinthians. I, my fault. I'm sorry. I've got Thessalonians on my mind today. 2 Corinthians 5. There's grace. I know. Thank you. I, I need all the grace I can get. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our home, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul says, first of all, if this body dies, then we have a body that will be for us in heaven. And it says, he used that term, a house not made with hands. Now what does that mean? Not made with hands. Huh? No, if it's not made with hands, it means a heavenly body. So what does that mean about the other body? What does it mean if a house is made with hands? Flesh. Okay, so in Galatians 4.4, 4, it says that Jesus was born of a woman. So that means his earthly body was made how? Physically. Just like we have a physical body. So he had a physical body that was made with hands or made with the normal process of human beings. Okay. In Mark 14, the accusation against Jesus was... I mean, I'm sorry, Mark 15. Maybe I'm crazy today. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, Mark 14. The accusation against Jesus was, in verse 58, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. So what was Jesus saying? This body, this physical body, will be destroyed. And in three days later, I will be build, I will build another temple or another body made without hands. So Gary, Jesus' earthly body is not his eternal body. It is a heavenly body from heaven. So when we die, we will have a body that is made from heaven. It won't take any of the components of this physical body that was made with hands. It will be a body made completely in heaven. So you're not going to have this body and the elements of this body transformed into a heavenly body, you will have a heavenly body that is made from God. But what happens to the remains? I don't know. <laughs> but it will still have some of it. It'll have the same appearance. Yes. We will eat. Yes. We will oh. yeah. Yes. We'll have, and you will look similar. Better looking probably. Better looking. <laughs> Without the flaws. Without quite as many flaws. <laughs> Not for you, Gary. Everybody else. <laughs> it's hard to improve. Okay, so Paul starts out with that verse. Um, for indeed in this house we groan, verse 2 of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we having put it on shall not be found naked. For indeed while we are in this tent we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who appeared, who, he, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge, therefore being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay. So he's saying that at the time we receive our dwelling from heaven, we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. Okay? Now what account are we going to give? And what is the basis of that account? Exactly. Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, when he talks about the building on a foundation and the rewards that come because of that, he says in verse 9, we are, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will, is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself <laughs> shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Okay, so what he's saying is, at the judgment seat of Christ, you who have, according to 1 Corinthians 12, you who have been born again, you are given uh, the Spirit of God. In verse 4 it says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things to all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ... You have to be born of the Spirit. You have to have the Spirit of God give you giftedness to do the work He has called you to do. And then out of that work, you will be rewarded if you were available for God to use you in the way that He intended to use you. So at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be a judgment or a revealing of how faithful you were to be used in this body as an agent of the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit to pour Himself through and accomplish the work that He had intended to accomplish through you. And so God will reveal, I mean, God will reward only those things that God produced. Now, as you, as you are a part of the church and you're doing things for the church, many things we do are good things. But we're doing them in the energy of the flesh. It's not, it's not that it's bad. It's not that, it's, 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 that it is that you're trying to do something bad. It's that if it is not given to you by the Spirit of God, it is not <clears throat> empowered by the Spirit of God, it is not done in the, the purpose and the plan and the power and the giftedness of the Holy Spirit, He's not going to reward you for that. In other words, God is only going to reward you for what He did. Isn't that amazing? God uses you as a vessel... He pours Himself through you. He empowers you by the Spirit of God to do what you call to do. And then He gifts you for what He did. We're rewarded for what He did through us. And if you did something without that, it's burned up. Now, go back to uh, 2 Corinthians 5. He says there in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be a recompense for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
Now, it sounds like we're dealing with sin, right? No. The Greek word does not mean that. The Greek words there, when it says good, it means profitable. It means something that will have value. And so if you don't do it in the power of the Spirit, it has no value. In other words, it is, in verse, the word for bad there means worthless, of no value. So here we're talking about the, the differences in value. On the one hand, if you do things in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you're working yourself out of that, in other words, if you're giving mercy in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's gifting you to have the gift of mercy, and you're showing mercy, and you're being available for God to pour mercy through you, and you, then God's going to reward you that. But if you're just doing something good for somebody because that's a good thing to do, I'm going to do it, and it's not empowered by the Spirit of God, that's worthless at the judgment seat of Christ. So the, the context is at the time of the revealing of your works, at the time of the revealing of your works, it will be revealed whether what you did and how much you did was in the giftedness and empowerment of the Spirit of God or was just in your own flesh. It's going to be either valuable or no value at the judgment seat of Christ. So it's either going to be gold, silver, precious stones, which withstands the purification process of fire, or wood, hay, and stubble, which is burned up. I was just thinking about what you're saying about it has value or doesn't have value, so it's value to what? Uh, value to the kingdom, impossible value to your own selfish motivations would be an example of the wood, hay, stubble. Right. And the value would be on building on the foundation. So the whole point of being gifted in the church is to do the work of building up the body, to building up the building. So we're all called to be a part of a local church, and we're all called to be useful in that local church. And so as you grow in your maturity, and you grow in your understanding, and you grow in your faith, then the Spirit of God has gifted you to do certain things. And everyone's ministry is different. Everyone's giftedness is different. It, it's uniquely to you. If someone has this gift, it doesn't mean it looks the same in everybody else's life. It's unique to you. The Spirit of God has gifted each one in His own way. And as you employ that gift and as you give yourself to that giftedness, then the Spirit of God, well, God's going to reward you at that time. Now, one other passage on that aspect is after we go through the judgment seat of Christ in Revelation 16, after we are all having all the wood, hay, and stubble burned. And again, remember, the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment of sin. Why? When Christ died on the cross, He covered your sin completely. He took it away. Yes, you will never answer for sin in heaven. When will you answer for sin as a believer? Now. There's discipline. There's consequences for you not being faithful now. So in this life, we're going to be disciplined. In this life, we're going to suffer punishment if we sin and not faithful as a believer. So if we're believers, like they were in Corinth, which we're going to be looking at next time Chris gets on that again, where people were, were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You know, they were sick and they died because God's discipline was on them because they weren't. So anything about sin will be taken care of now. So as a judgment seat of Christ, we're not talking about sin. Now sin may keep you from being rewarded because it may keep you from being used of the Spirit of God to pour out His giftedness through you. So sin may have a, an effect on your rewards, but that will not be judged. The only thing that will be judged is your good works or your worthless works, your 
valuable works through the Spirit or your unvaluable works through the, the flesh. So that's what he's talking about there. Now, in, in Revelation 16, this is the marriage ceremony when Jesus Christ presents his bride to the Father. Now, you know the Jewish wedding, wedding thing is in the Jewish tradition, the father of the groom would pay the dowry or pay the price for the bride, which Jesus Christ was the price, but it was paid. And then there would be a time of engagement, which was a, it wasn't just a engagement that you could break off. It was a committed engagement until the time of the fulfillment of the ceremony. So the, the bridegroom would be separated from the bride for a period of time. And then when he would, he would prepare a place for the bride to stay at his father's house or in his hometown. And then he would go and fetch his bride and bring it back to his house. And then the marriage ceremony would take place. So in, in chapter 16 of Revelation, we have the marriage ceremony of the church. I'm sorry, 19. I'm sorry. Chapter 19 of Revelation, in verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So after the judgment seat of Christ, when all the wood, hay, and stubble is burned away, and what is left is the gold, silver, and precious stones, and the white robes that are given to us at that time are the reflection of the righteous works that were rewarded on earth in heaven. So we're presented to the Father as the purified bride, not from sin, not purified from sin. We already purified from sin. We wouldn't be in heaven if we had sin. You couldn't be in heaven if you had sin. So it's not about the sin. It's about the purification of the works so that when he presents his bride to the Father, the bride has no unvalue. It's all valuable because it was made and produced through the Spirit of God. And so he presents the bride, the bride to Christ. And now, as the fully clothed bride, we're fixing to be revealed with the glorified Christ, the bridegroom, as he comes back down to earth and the saints come with him, as glorified saints in all their righteous robes because they're the bride of Christ in all His glory. And so we're going to serve with Him, reign with Him for the thousand years on the kingdom age. But the marriage ceremony takes place in heaven, and then if we get time to it, we'll get to it. The marriage feast takes place on earth because we eat on earth. We don't eat in heaven. We eat on earth. And we eat in the new earth eventually. Let me stop there because I'm running out of time. And we will... Pick up somewhere next week.